Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. On today's show, we're going to be talking with the wonderful Heather Forbes about when school is not working for your child. I really enjoyed this show, and I think you will too. Here's an idea of what you're going to hear. You don't allow these types of assignments to blow up your family anymore. It's not, you can't make the choice of homework over family. I am Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We are the national adoption and infertility education and support nonprofit. You can find us at creatingafamily.org. There is still time to get our free multimedia guide, Surviving the Holidays Without a Child, a multimedia guide for those trying to conceive or adopt. We're getting great reviews. I think you will really find it helpful. Besides that, it's free. And even if you already have your child, and giving the topic of this show, you might already have a child uh, and, and are finding, since you're tuning into this show, um, please share it with those who are still trying. This is a difficult time of the year for people who want to be a parent and are not. Uh, so please let them know about this. They can find it on our website, creatingafamily.org. <clears throat> As of last week, guys, I am battling a cold, so you will hear that in my voice. Uh, so please forgive me. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer does not have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through Faring's HeartBeat program. To learn more, go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com. This show, as, as well as all the many resources we have on creating a family, including our resources on school issues with adopted kids, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased and accurate information to those struggling to create their family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing waiting children from around the world. They offer po- offering home study and post-adoption services to residents in North Carolina and New York. They also place kids from <clears throat> Armenia, Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they also do kinship adoptions. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing gestational surrogacy matching program. Today, we are going to be talking about when school is not working for your child. Our guest is Heather Forbes. She is co-founder of the Beyond Consequences Institute and author of two books, Beyond Consequences, Logic and Control, a Loved-Based Approach for Helping Children with Severe Behaviors, as well as 
Help for Billy, a Beyond Consequences Approach to Helping Challenging Children in the Classroom. She is also a mom to two kids adopted as toddlers from Russia. Welcome, Heather, back to Creating a Family. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. You know, this is a subject that is very close to both your and my hearts. We've done a show before where, well, you've been on the show a couple of times, but we did a show on school issues, and uh, it struck me that uh, we had a lot in common because both of us have uh, dealt with children who did not fit the school mold. And and I'll be frank, it was, I, I probably will say it was my most challenging, it's always a little hard to say, <laughs> with four kids, but it, it feels to me when I look back that trying to work within the school system um, to help my children who were the square pegs, uh, it really brought me to my knees on more so than just about anything else in my parenting journey. Did you also find it uh, as stressful as I did or as, as challenging as I did? Oh, absolutely. And it wasn't just like the first year. It was all the way through. And I can't tell you how many meetings I walked out of just feeling so depleted, in tears and powerless. And so it really is a journey that we as parents have to become very strong and become incredible advocates for our children and make sure that they are going to get what they need. But I will say this, I'm happy to be here to say that both my kids are um, in college. They made it through and they're actually in college. Like I have to like, I can't even comprehend that it's actually happening, right? Because it seems a bit surreal because the journey was so difficult. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And and also to give, I could also report the very same thing that the, uh, in fact, one is actually out of college now. I will say that this is kind of an aside and it might be a depressing aside. I did not find, however, that, you know, learning disabilities do not change and that you don't outgrow them. I shouldn't say they don't change. You don't outgrow them. And, And so even in college, although my role was certainly a different one, it was some, I, you might not have experienced this, but um, my role of of empowering my child, because in particular, well, actually, children, I should say, because it was more than one child, to stand up, to advocate for themselves, and quite frankly, to access services for themselves. Um, it was was ongoing, even in college, but in some ways it was more complicated because I didn't want to be a hovering parent and wanted to empower them and not be in the midst of it. So anyway. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, I'm exactly the same. My daughter was actually telling me the other day she, she has two tutors right now on campus, and she's gone out and she has found those tutors because she knows she needs them. So, yes, it is we advocate for them and give them the, the modeling of what that looks like so that then that empowers them not to be worried about having to ask for help. And I think that's a great thing that we can give to our kids. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And we ended up having to take more of the tough love approach with one of ours um, and probably, quite frankly, should have done it with the other one as well. Uh, because one of the things that I think is very common is that kids, do, uh, young young people, young adults, do not want to stand out. And some do not want to access the help in college because they want to believe that they don't need it. And... Uh, we actually pulled one of ours out, and as I say, looking back, we should have pulled uh, both of ours that really struggled uh, out of school. We pulled one out and said, you need to go to a community college uh, until you can show us that you are able to um, access services and, and perform. Uh, and it was a sobering wake-up call uh, for that uh, for that uh, young person. And But I will say it was effective uh, because when he went back yep. to school, he – 
um, find I went uh, volunteer vera, voluntarily to the uh, to the learning center and uh, said, "What do you got? This is what I need, and what do you got?" So, uh, anyway. Um, oh no, we're definitely uh, living a parallel life. I can give you my story too. You know, I, I had one that I had to say, "Okay, you're done. You, you know, I'm not paying for failing grades. You figure yeah. it out." <laughs> so he's yeah. back, but yeah, it's they're on their own journey. But we have to be there in a loving way, but sometimes in a very strong. This is the boundary way as well. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not a um, you're not a good investment for me right now, and your college education <laughs> is one I, is an investment that I'm willing to spend. But you've got to do your share. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, but but that's probably a little further down the line than some of the of folks who are going to be listening to this. So what we're going to be talking about today is first, how do you know when the when your school environment or, or the school your child is going to is not working for your child, and then and then we'd like to talk about why some schools. Uh, and some school environments are so hard for some kids. And then uh, lastly is certainly, uh, and we want to spend a lot of time on this, and that is what can parents do about it. But let's start at the beginning in that uh, how do you know, what are the signs it says, because let's be honest, sometimes, I mean, all kids complain about school, and, 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 some, and all kids procrastinate on doing their homework. And, uh, and so uh, how do we know when it has reached the point where you as a parent need to be concerned that this is, is really not working and not a healthy place for your child? That's a great question because, like you said, a lot of kids are going to struggle. But the difference, I think, with our kids that are really at the point that they need some type of intervention and they need that extra support is that when you notice that their resistant behaviors become so exaggerated, and there's three criteria that I look at when I decide whether a child is just, you know, just being the normal resistant versus out of the out of the box resistant, and that's the intensity the frequency and the duration of the resistance that you're seeing on that child. It's not that they're just having, you know, a little bit of a struggle and they just don't want to do their homework, but when all of a sudden that 10-minute assignment takes four hours to do every single night, then you know, okay, something's not working. This is not about just pushing this child to the next step. When that child completely decompensates over one little assignment or one little thing that happens at school, then we really do have to have a wake-up call and say, wait a minute, something out in the environment, it's not just the child, but something outside that child needs to be addressed as well. So things like your child dreading going to school, resisting even getting it and getting dressed, uh, um, would that be a, a sign, um, although especially in doing it on a frequent and intense basis? I, I do believe that. And I think that we also have to think, wait a minute, children are designed to have this sense of curiosity. They have this love for learning. And where did that go wrong? And what trauma does, and when I say trauma, this is any kid who's had, especially an adopted child, uh, at any stage of the adoption, that's trauma because it's disconnected from the original connection. But any child that's had some sort of path along the way, what trauma does, it robs a child of their curiosity. And so what happens then is that we see behaviorally, this child doesn't want to go to school, they're resistant, they they can't even try, they kind of look lazy, or they just you know, act like they don't care. And so when we see them in that state of resistance, and it's something that we really have to see more as a traumatic issue and not just a you know a bad kid or a lazy kid because that's what you often hear you know they're just not trying right they just need yeah. to try harder yeah try harder you know <laughs> sit still uh, obey the rules you know which granted is important in the school environment but uh, it helps to look a little deeper 
we did get a well let me say, let me let me go back to our original thing okay so that's some ideas on on uh when we will at the end by the way we are going to coming back to some specific tips for parents to know when it's time to change a school environment so we will come back to that so why do you think heather that some school environments are are so hard for some kids and or and maybe this is uh putting it a little harshly but are so resistant to working with some of the what I call square pegs? You know, I think that the educational field is very much dominated by the philosophy of behavioralism, that the the training in that field is all about behavior. The child needs to make a better choice, um, rules and consequences. If they don't do this, then this will happen. And it's just a mindset. It's not a negative thing. It's just that when you put a child in there who... I believe is not a behavioral issue, but the child's issues are more regulatory issues where that child has a high sensitivity to stress. That child doesn't know how to calm down on their own. They don't have a good self-regulatory system. And so you have a child that has regulatory issues and you place them into an environment that is all about behavior and the perspective from the behavioral side, then you have a mismatch. It's just a mismatch. And I I see the collision happening all the time. I think that's what you and I were talking about when we first started as parents ourselves. We saw that happening where we see a child that is unable to be able to perform, but the schools are perceiving it as a child who is unwilling to perform. Yeah. Yeah, and and also a child that has learning disabilities in some ways some learning disabilities are are readily identified and i used to think if only if only i had a kid that that, you know, that really had had firm dyslexia where we could just it's easy to it's not really easy but it's it is a definable there's a test that that can that can determine it and therefore and there's people understand it um i was so frustrated because n- neither of my kids that really struggled um, had a learning disability that was so easily defined, but I think the school system can do better when they can define things. Yes, and I think that the term invisible disability is a perfect term because it's just not concrete. It's there, but you can't just take a test and say that's what it is. You can't take an x-ray of it like you can do a broken bone, but it's just nebulous, something that is going to be there being present. And looking at it from the behavioral perspective is where the uh, the chaos starts happening. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's let's jump jump into some of the uh of the common questions you get. We actually got a question um it made me smile because when you and I were uh sharing question common questions on this subject that we wanted to talk about, your first one was uh, dovetailed with the first question we also got and I saw I'll read uh, our question it came from Leanne. Why does it take hours on end for my child to complete what should be a 10-minute assignment? Uh, and I think she she didn't say, but I think she said uh, homework assignment is what I think she's assuming. Uh, I'm 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 judging it to be a homework assignment, right? And yeah, that one I could probably talk for a whole hour on. <laughs> so let me see if I can give some just important points on that. Um, first of all, if it's a homework assignment, that child has been in school at least five or six hours, if not longer, 
And that child has ridden the bus probably. The child has been out in the playground and the cafeteria. And I'm pointing all these things out because these are highly stimulating environments. And so this child has been under a lot of stress all day, a lot of pressure. And we don't think that a recess is pressure, but it is because that's a social environment. And so many of our kids lack so desperately in their ability to socialize and pick up on social cues. And so an environment like that, when once they get home, they are completely depleted. There is nothing else to give. And so we say, well, just get this done and then you can play. Well, they can't even just get that done because they are so empty. And so instead of having the ability to say, oh, I just can't do this, I'm so exhausted, what do we see? Well, resistance. I'm not going to do that. I hate this. This is stupid. You suck, blah, blah, blah. And we get nothing but you know, incredibly intense behaviors out of it. So that's one thing, that they're just completely depleted, I believe, what I call that really is that they are at their breaking point. Their window of stress tolerance is completely gone, and they're ready to blow, and that's what we see. The other piece is that even if you have a child that maybe you try a homework assignment on the weekend, right, and you're saying, well, let's not join during the week. Let's do it when they're refreshed and they're ready to go, and you still get the same behavior. What I see out of our kids is that they have a very low sense of self, Their belief system is very negative because they've been through an experience in early childhood, typically our kids have, that has been filled with rejection and abandonment, which, by the way, is just adoption. I'm I'm not negative on adoption, but I'm always looking at it from the child's perspective, is that they have this sense that they're not okay, that they're not smart, they're not worthy, they're not lovable, and they're, they're, they're just not worthy even to be on this planet. And I know that sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I can't tell you how many kids in my private practice have been able to explain at five years old, I don't deserve to be on this planet. So we start there, and then when you have a child then that has a piece of homework assignment, what I believe is that we are triggering that child's belief system. And so let's say the child has this math sheet, and there's problems on that, which he is perfectly capable of doing. But the child says, no, I believe that I'm stupid. But see, the child doesn't want to believe that they're stupid. And so that math sheet then is sitting in front of them, and it's going to be proof that they are stupid. Because if they get something wrong, their interpretation is, well, see, I am stupid. And so the child says, well, I don't want to feel stupid, so I'm not going to do it. And they will fight you tooth and nail four or five hours until midnight, and they will not finish that assignment. No matter what you do, no matter how nice you are, no matter how many positive reinforcements you give, but the risk of feeling stupid is greater than anything else in this world. And so let me relate it to us. If I, Dawn, gave you a piece of paper and I said, here, I want you to do this assignment. Oh, and by the way, it's going to make you feel really stupid. I mean, would you want to do it? No. No. No, I would not. and so that's those are the two main pieces that I see when these resistant behaviors go so far beyond anything we've ever seen before. Does that, does that make sense? It does, but but nonetheless, the homework assignment exists, and if our kid is going to pass third grade, they need to do the homework assignment. So what are, what's a parent to do? How what does work? We it could because you're right. Oftentimes. You know, setting up a positive reinforcement system doesn't work. Setting up a negative reinforcement system, the positive being 
you know, we're going to go to the park as soon as you get finished, uh, or you can, uh, you know, pull out, you can uh, play on your iPad, uh, you can play for, you get your screen time as soon as you're finished. The negative being, you know, you're not having dinner until you finish your assignment. Uh, the rest of us are going to go to the park and you will be staying here, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. If neither of those works, what's a parent to do? And that's why we have to get, put the homework aside for the moment. Now, I am all about education, and I love learning. I think we need to get our kids, you know, back in the academic arena. But the only way to do that is to get down to the root of the real issue. The issue isn't about academics. The issue is about that child's heart, that child's feeling that they aren't okay. And so this is going to be the hardest thing I ask parents to do. And I will tell you, it was one of the hardest things I had to do as well, is to say, you know what, right now we're not going to worry about academics. That will come later. What I need to do as a parent is to get my child back into a place of safety, meaning emotional safety. I need to get this child back into a place that they know that they are worthy. And so just practicality, what does that look like? Let's say the mom, dad sits down with the child and says, hey, Billy, okay, we just have this little assignment. Just get this done. We'll be all right. And the child goes, I'm not doing that. I hate that. I'm stupid. And the parent typically will say, Oh, Billy, no, sweetheart, you're not stupid. You're really smart. I know you can do this. And that's all fine and well, but Billy can't hear that because what the parent has done now, the parent has now been in contrast and conflict of what the child's belief system is. And you know our kids, they will fight us to the nail. If we're saying, no, you're smart, and they feel, no, I'm stupid, they're going to put their heels in the ground and say, I am stupid, and you can't tell me I'm smart, and blah, blah, blah. And they will create conflict out of something just as simple as that. And so what we have to do is step away and just say, you know what, I don't mean like physically step away, but step away from that perspective. And so the parent then sits down and let's say the child says, no, I'm stupid, I can't do this. And the parent needs to just get into Billy's shoes and go, Billy, I had no idea. You felt stupid. Tell me more. And I mean really from the deepest place in your heart to feel what it is to be an 8-year-old child that feels stupid and sit there and say, Billy, when did, you, when did you decide that you were stupid? And go into this conversation with this sense of curiosity to say, let me explore this. Don't try to go and fix it. Don't try to make this child feel better. That's not going to work. We've all tried that. But you've got to get down to the depths of this child's soul and say, you know, like what? When did you decide you were stupid? And the kid will say, well, I knew I was stupid the minute I was born. And say, well, what was it that gave you the clue to that? And you, and you just kind of go into this conversation without any expectations, with with this completely open heart. And i tell you what that ha- is able to do for our kids. It's able to bring up all that subconscious negative thinking. Those are the blocks. And we bring those blocks up to the surface, to the conscious level. And then we can be able to say, wow, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry it's so hard. And then we can give the empathy. Then we can give, ultimately, then we can give the correction to say, sweetheart, I'm so sorry this happened. But, you know, I know that you're smart. And I know somewhere inside of you, you still believe that you're smart. But all that positive reinforcement, all those positive um you know, just parental things we want to give to our kids, those can't happen until we get down to the depths of the darkness. And and that I'm assuming this is not like a one-time conversation. So if you've got mm-hmm. a child who at this point is you're at loggerheads, uh, homework is a trial every single day, am I hearing you correctly to say 
just back off from it and and focus yep, on the yep. relationship and dig in, and focus on talking and then uh, let the school consequences fall where they may. Is that what I'm saying? Yes, and I think that's yeah, and that's where we have to start working with the schools and see if they can't allow you to say, look, can you just give me three months of no homework? If you just go in and say, I need to you know no homework for the child. They will freak out. And so maybe sometimes you just say, look, three weeks, three months, we're working on helping this child get back to a place of emotional safety first. And then we've got to solidify this foundation of this child, and then we'll get back to the homework. And, you know, sometimes I've had parents, and I will tell you, they just sat there and they did the homework either with the child or actually for the child. Now, the child was still sitting there, and so maybe the parent says, okay, well, let's just do this math sheet. All right, six times six, that's 36. And so the child's sitting there, and they're listening to the math being done, even though they're not doing it themselves. And the parent can just put a sticky note on, and hopefully they've talked to the teacher and say, look, we struggle with homework today. It's in my handwriting. We'll try again tomorrow. And that's it. And you don't allow these types of assignments to blow up your family anymore. It's not, you can't make the choice of homework over family. And that is my bottom rule. And again, I, this is hard for me to say, and I'll tell you, because my own blueprint, I come from a family of educators. I, I have a twin sister who is a teacher. I have a brother who used to be an attorney and went back to teaching. My mother was on the school board. Like, it is ingrained in my cells to be all about education. And I'm sitting here today telling you, let it go. Let it go for now, and then we can come back to it. So I think what we have a challenge as parents is that we're scared to let it go. We're terrified because then they won't get their education. Then they will look stupid at school, and then we look like bad parents, and all these negative outcomes can start unfolding in the, you know, the, the relative state of our mind. And from day to day, I'm just saying, stop, look at what's important, your child. Pick your child, pick relationship over homework, and I promise you, and I can say this from my own family and from thousands of families I've worked with, it will come back online when they are ready. And I think it does help to say, uh, what I hear you saying is to analyze what am I afraid of? Uh, Why is this such an important point to me that my child completes this math assignment or any any of the homework? And I think you're right. Yep. You've identified it's fear. It's fear of um, my kid is not going to graduate. My kid will be living in my basement for the rest of my life. My kid is not going to ever be able to support themselves. My kid is going to – and then some of the ones we really don't want to admit. Um, I will look like a bad parent because my, I haven't made my kid do their homework. Um, I will yep. be looking like a lazy parent. Um, the teacher will dislike me or dislike my child. Um so any of those things could really be a factor as to why it's so important to us. Absolutely. And we have to understand that when our stress heightens out of that kind of thinking, fear of the future, then when we sit down to to try to be that connected parent that is trying to help our child do homework, we have to know that our kids are picking up on that kind of stress. I mean, they're already stressed out themselves, and because our children are so hypervigilant about the people around them, especially us as their parents, they know us, and so they're going to feel that kind of stress. We're adding into that negativity. Now, I don't want that to come off to blame us, that, oh, it's our fault or anything. I'm just saying that this is just one piece of the dynamic that really does get overlooked very easily. And so I think just even as a parent then, 
in order to keep your sanity, to not go into these just knock-down, blow-out fights, and I mean fights with our kids over homework, that it's just not worth it. And so we have to be confident that, you know what, being a good parent does mean letting go of the homework when it needs to be let go of. There will be times that you do need to push it through, but if it is completely a, a blowout after blowout after blowout, then you need to step back. And what your child does need from you, and this is where it takes us courage to say this needs to be different. Love looks different. Love doesn't look like it needs to be accomplished through homework. Love looks like I need to connect with my child to make sure that they're feeling safe and connected and loved and then we can get back to it. So it's really redefining what it means to be a good parent. And and how long, in your experience, do you need to give it a rest uh, to let to let everything cool and to focus on relationship before you come back? Uh, how long does that look in general? Yeah, that's a hard one. But in general, and I will say this is that I typically give parents about six months to just let the dust settle, put it aside, get back to relationships. Sometimes that means um, even homeschooling for a while, pulling a child out of the school environment. Sometimes that means uh, just working with the school and, and getting them to write on an IEP or some sort of behavior plan that this child will not have homework for six months. But give it six months, and you will start seeing if you can make that change. You de-stress the environment at home. Sometimes that means cutting out soccer and football and piano and all these extracurricular activities. It just means coming back to the very basics of what it means to be able to be connected into a family, building that very important foundation. And then we start adding back the pieces of homework, the pieces of extracurricular, all these little pieces that we want our kids ultimately to have. But it needs to be done step by step, little bit by little bit, allowing that child's nervous system to rebuild, allowing that child's belief system to reconnect and reprogram, literally, and and to be able to have some very positive experiences that can build upon more positive rather than staying in this negative neurological feedback loop of negative, 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 always expecting something to change when there's nothing, there's no variable that is changing. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're talking about when school is not working for your child. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletters. We have two newsletters, one for adoption and one for infertility. You can choose which one you want to receive. We let you know about the latest developments in this field as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on the top right side of any page on our website, creatingafamily.org. All right, another another problem that parents often report having is the morning struggle of getting their child in, ready for school, getting their kid out the door, getting their kid to school. Um, so I guess it's a dovetail. It's the bookend to the, uh, the after school. For some families, trouble begins at the very beginning of the day. What's a parent to do there? You know, first we have to recognize what is this struggle. I think the one thing I want to have parents really start focusing on is not how do I get my kid out of the bed and out of the house on time, but what is really driving this resistance? What is driving this child to be so lethargic? And, you know, this is a child that 
can spend 45 minutes just picking out a shirt. You know, they just, their whole system slows down to an absolute snail's pace. And it's like you can't light a fire under that child to get anything done. And so instead of figuring out how do I get the child motivated to get ready, you have to say, well, what is it? What is really behind this? And I think it goes back to that idea of fear and stress. And this child knows that they are facing six hours of the day away from the parents in an environment that is very stressful. We forget really how stressful school can be. And again, it's not a bad thing about school. It's just our kids have a hard time handling social situations and academic situations. So school is very stressful. And so this child is facing a day of feeling like a failure and having to expend all this energy well, that makes perfect perfect sense to me as why this child wouldn't want to get out of bed and get dressed. You know, again, relate that to yourselves. If any one of us have know that we're getting up to face a day with maybe a meeting with our boss or a really hard conflict if, between some colleagues, you're not jumping out of bed and ready for the day. You know, you're doing everything to say, can I just sleep in five more minutes? And so just relate to your kids to start. And then... What I want to do as far as what to do to help that child is that you want to start helping that child get regulated, meaning you want to help that child wake up in a very calm manner instead of getting our kids independent and using their alarm. I want our parents actually going in and waking up their kids and saying, hey, welcome to the day. And just spend 10 minutes with that child, rub their back, just, you know, if they'll let you lay down, cuddle with them, whatever's appropriate, what age they are. But just spend 10 minutes with them, helping them just to sort of wake up and face this really heavy day that they are looking into. And then, you know what, I want you to also think about what you can do to help this child get ready. Now, this is going to go in direct conflict to everything that we have been taught as parents, that our kids need to get up and be independent and brush their teeth and come down for breakfast and all these things. They've got to learn to do this on their own. You know, developmentally, our kids are are a little bit behind for the most part. And when our kids get stressed out, they're very much going to decrease their development. They're going to go backwards. And so you might have a 10-year-old that is doing this. But in the morning, when they're so stressed out, they're going to revert right back to being like a 5-year-old. And I think all of us can relate to that. You've seen your 10-year-old, your 15-year-old have a tantrum like a, like a 2-year-old. And so when kids get stressed out, they regress. And so to help our kids, I want you to maybe offer to help get them dressed, to pick out their clothes for them, you know, and to say, listen, I'm going to be here with you as you move through all your routine this morning. I'm just here to support you. And now I can feel some of the resistance in the audience here that's listening because it's like, no, they're 10 years old. They should be able to do this on their own. And I get that. But it's not about spoiling them. It's not about babying them. You have kids who need extra support around them until they can learn to do it themselves. The alternative is what? Is to fight, is to struggle, and to stay in the same pattern. Now, listen, I promise you, your kid's not going to be 20 years old and you're still getting them dressed. I mean, I, I know that sounds silly, but it is sort of one of our fears. And so allow, your, exactly <laughs> allow your, yourself to... Just be there in supportive mode. Again, six months of this. And then ultimately you will have to say, okay, honey, it's your turn to get up and get dressed. I'll see you downstairs. Mm-hmm. 
So simplify their routine, help them with their routine, um, treat them at a younger developmental level. Am, am I summarizing well what you're saying? Perfect summarization. Okay. So that's, that can tackle some of the getting them out of the bed uh, in the morning. And, you know, what let about, me add to that. Go ahead. And can I just add to that? And be empathetic. Don't try to fix it. Go in and say, honey, I know it's a hard day. And what because what, what do we usually say? We say, oh, no, I know it's hard, but you can do it. I know you're strong. Don't even go there yet. Just say, honey, I know this is a really hard day. What's going to be the hardest thing of the day? Talk about the negative. Talk about what's bugging them and be empathetic to it, again, rather than just fixing it. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little about testing and IEPs, um, individualized education plans for the uninitiative, uninitiated into the, into the uh, lingo of, uh, of learning differences uh, in schools. One of the first choices parents have to make is whether or not to, well, um, well, yeah, the first choice is they know their child is struggling. They don't know why. Is should they get their child tested within the school system or independently outside the school system? And then uh, schools won't automatically do that. If you decide you wanted it to be done in the school system, how do you get, the te- if the teacher is not recommending it, how do you get your child tested? So let's start with the first issue, which is what are the pros and cons to having um, learning disability testing done within the school system versus uh, independently outside? Right. Well, the first one, obviously, is the expense because, you know, if the school is going to pay for it, great. The problem I see with that, however, is that, again, I think that our schools are very much trained in a behavioral model, and so they don't look at the issues going on with our kids through a trauma lens. And a child that has had trauma can easily look like, I'm just going to take, for example, a, a child with like with ADHD or appears to have ADHD. A lot of the kids I work with um, will have all the behavioral symptoms of your standardized ADHD child, but it's not ADHD. It's really anxiety. It's a huge level of anxiety going on underneath it all, and so they get misdiagnosed very easily, and whether it's, you know, a disorder like that, mental health disorder or learning disability or anything else, I think that the problem is we don't have enough in our public school system to of training to recognize what trauma looks like, the manifestation of trauma, versus what we've always seen in the past. So that's probably the biggest thing that I have seen. And so if you do end up getting and hiring someone to do it privately, independently, uh, be sure that you check with this person and ask them their background of understanding trauma, uh, what early childhood trauma does to the child's nervous system, to the child's wiring of the brain. We have to look at the child's um, processing, the child's ability at the neurological level to be able to understand language. There's a whole lot of things, and actually a good a good physician who can do like a really strong neuropsych evaluation is the the ideal way to go from a trauma perspective. I yeah I, I second what you're saying. One of the things that we face within school, there's a couple of issues within school testing. It seems to me one, once the testing is done, it becomes a part of your child's permanent record. And if you disagree with it, if you feel like they've missed something or they haven't, they've misdiagnosed. Well, I'll use your example of ADHD versus not not looking deeper and, and, and seeing that that perhaps doesn't fit all the patterns for that. 
um, you don't have much control over it because once the testing's done, it's my understanding that becomes a part of your child's record, at least when you're mm-hmm. having it done <clears throat> excuse me, privately. You have control over that. You know what it's going to say, and then you can enter it into the child's record, but you have control over it. Have you seen that as well? Am I reading that yeah, correctly? So you, yeah, no, you make a great point that it really does become part of their record. And um, and if it's the wrong diagnostic interpretation, then then you're up against another battle. And, and, and this, again, I uh, I've had experience in a number of different school settings, but I, I obviously haven't. I can't speak universally. But it seems to me, with in-school testing, it, it just has not been very good. Uh, is the bottom line, and it uh, and it seemed to me the reason it wasn't is that they had a very limited number of tests that they were either familiar with or or had the that had the, the funds with which to to utilize. Because you can't just use. You have to have training in, in specific tests. So again, if your child doesn't fit a standard diagnosis, uh, again, I go back to dyslexia, um, where it, it's a more standard diagnosis that is, and I, I'm not, I realize that for people with dyslexia, that, uh, uh, with children with dyslexia, that it's not an easy necessarily to diagnose disorder. But if your child doesn't have something that's got a ready name to it, they may not know what tests to use and um, and aren't necessarily willing to dig very deep. That's that has been my experience. I'm, I'm yes. curious to see if, Heather, you've had a similar experience. Oh, absolutely. And I think even worse what happens is that they run these tests and they go, oh, nothing's wrong. Exactly. See, Billy's just being a bad kid. And then <laughs> then you're really like, no. Because like you said, they may not have the funding for it. They may not have the knowledge behind it. They may just say, well, everything's fine. And they just kind of stick to their guns that this kid is just being, you know, a bad kid. They need to be disciplined a little bit deeper and then they won't they won't go into it. And I think that's really – and that's where my passion comes in in working with schools. I am actually doing a lot of training this coming year of working with schools to help them understand what does it mean to be able to see a child from a trauma-informed perspective. And I think that's where, where the solutions will ultimately lie. But I think even parents can start working with schools, even if there's a guidance counselor or someone that will start listening to them about what trauma does to a child's ability in the academic environment, whether it's a mental health diagnosis or, like you said, a learning disability. The pers- the, there's so many different things that affects this child overall, and we have to start educating our schools behind that. Amen. And, and I will say that testing is not such that you do it once when your child is eight and, and you don't do it again. It is something that, and, and I say this because um, you may choose to utilize, because there's a cost associated, so you may choose to utilize before your child is going to college, if you're trying to access services in college, you're going to have to have new testing done. So it's uh, it's not a, a once-and-done type of thing. And I'll tell you what we found the best, and, and, and I can't tell you the number of different um, um, resources we utilized in, in testing. It's, you know... It, it would it fills up more than a uh, um, the, the the single times we've tried the, the different types of testing and the different types of resources we utilized, including in school and out of school. But some of the, one of the best we found was a university psychology department. They were uh, they and I don't know that all do this, but you could check with 
um, a nearby university with a psychology department or, and it can also be a psychological testing or an educational testing, wherever that is. And they are often using, um, uh, they're often open to having, uh, have their students and their, but their professors are overseeing it, but their graduate students, usually their doctoral students are the ones doing the testing. And it was by far the best testing we had done, and I can't tell you. Like again, we've we had brain mapping, we had everything done, and this one was by far the best. And I think it was because they were looking. I mean, they were using it as a, as a teaching mechanism for their students. Therefore, when it was very clear that the kid couldn't do math, and yet the regular testing for math didn't didn't pick up anything, that they would start digging deeper, and they were able to find right. really. I think for the first time. What was really and, and quite frankly, the cost I don't remember, but was very inexpensive. I think it was like two hundred dollars or something along those lines. Now, that was a number of years ago, <clears throat> but I will say that that was the. Uh, I I just can't speak highly enough of of our experience there. Let me take and a you moment. know I think that that really says something real quick about how complex our kids are. They're not simple. They're very complex, no. and that's what you're getting to. Absolutely, and like I said, I used to wish for a a child that would have a simple diagnosis. It was just give me a diagnosis <laughs> that we can just that will have a quick label because teachers get the labels, um, and a kid who doesn't have a quick label, I've even went to the point of making up labels. Um, just because it was like, okay, if, if they need a label, I'll come up with one. Um, and, uh, and, you know, one way or the other, I'm going to do it. Let me take a moment, let me break here, and uh, let you know about a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that without them, you wouldn't be having hearing us. Uh, this show is dependent upon uh, these organizations who believe in us. We have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have three adoption programs, private infant, international, and foster care. We also have Holt International. They were founded in 1956, and they want every child to have a loving and secure home. They have been leading the global community in finding families for children who need them and providing the pre- and post-adoption support and resources that they need to thrive. Um, I want to both you and I, which we found out on the last show you were on, um, chose to homeschool our children at, uh, at, at specific points, uh, at different points in each of our kids, in each of our cases. Why did you choose to homeschool? And then I'll share as to why homeschooling was an option that, that we chose. Yes. You know, my it was actually early on. I put my kids into kindergarten thinking, okay, great. I've got six hours during the day, finally. <laughs> thinking this is a wonderful deal. Well, no. You know, my kids just completely decompensated. That's only the word I can use is that they actually held up fairly well in school, but when they got home, it was just an absolute nightmare. I mean, they were they were so stressed out, so dysregulated, they couldn't even function. And every day I would be like, it's like Humpty Dumpty, put them back together again and send them back into the school environment and then come home the next day and they would be the same cycle. And I just was like, something has to change. They're not ready. Academically, uh, cognitively, they were ready. But as far as their stress response systems, not ready, emotionally and socially, completely unprepared for it. So I will tell you, that, you know, I decided to homeschool and 
it was not something that I personally wanted to do. It is not something that I'm I'm good at, something that I, you know, felt a passion about doing. But, you know, as parents, you just do what you have to do. And I always, like, bow down and applaud homeschooling parents because it's just something that didn't come naturally to me. But, you know what, you just do it. And I did, and I um, was helping my kids be able to stay academically in, in the place that they needed to be, but yet, at the same time, be able to help build their foundation. All those things I talked about earlier, getting them emotionally secure, getting them to that they have a better regulatory system so that they can be away from the home environment for six hours and still be able to be okay and and, um, and not come home every day and collapse. And so that really was the, the start of their their academic was, a career was that setting the stage in the beginning, building the foundation, and then slowly moving them back into um, the first the public school. And I will also tell you, my kids went through five different types of schooling, homeschooling, charter school, public school, um, private school. I even sent my son to military school, which probably sounds completely opposite to everything I believe in, but he needed a very strong, structured environment once he was a teenager. And so they've been through every type of school, but it did start absolutely with the homeschooling to get the, the foundation secure. And and I'll share for us. I, yeah, I look originally. I think we told ourselves we were doing it because he was falling behind educationally, and we were concerned that he wasn't going to then get it. The school was like, yeah, he'll catch up next year, and we were thinking, right. no, this is he won't catch up next year. So I think originally we we told ourselves we were doing it for an educational purpose. But I think if I'm being honest with myself, we just needed a break. We needed a break from the and and that's the exact opposite of what you would think that I would say about homeschooling because it is certainly not an easy thing to do. But the anxiety and the trying to work within the school system mm-hmm. and getting the school system to meet our child's needs um, was just was just emotionally exhausting and 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 time consuming and and it was not good for our, our child. Um, we were convinced that the school system was going to uh, the the phrase I use was beating him up that he was becoming he was becoming uh, just a different kid he was dreading he felt stupid uh for all those reasons but really it was we just needed time to all of us heal from what i feel like the school system was was doing to us and and time to kind of catch a breath and it's interesting cuz both you and 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 i both ultimately wanted to get our kids back into a different type of school setting. There are other people who are are choosing and do choose to homeschool throughout. Uh and and for them, um they they don't have the uh the desire necessarily to get their kids back into a school system because they're committed to doing mm-hmm. this through their child's full education. But uh I felt like for our son that it was better for him ultimately if we could get him uh, ready and back in and that's ultimately what we did but not not until his um, eighth grade year that we eventually transitioned him completely. And even then, we homeschooled certain classes through uh, high school um, just because the, the the ones that he knew he was going to be struggling with. One of the questions that is often asked, though, if you decide that, okay, homeschooling for either permanently or for a period of time, <clears throat> excuse me, is in the best interest of this child, 
and this may be outside the scope of, of this show, but one of the challenges is how do you fit this into a very busy life, and especially how do you fit this in if you're working outside the home? Yeah, and I think that we, again, have to sort of redefine what does education look like. One of the things about our kids and the way that they operate is they're, most of our kids in general are very rigid in their thinking. They're very um, very black and white. And so sitting down and just doing a worksheet isn't going to work for them. It, they need experiential knowledge. They need to be able to see it, to feel it, to touch it, and that's how they comprehend it. And that's actually a good thing because when you're in a busy lifestyle, you can start teaching anywhere. It's not about sitting down at a dining room table and teaching. Okay, now's the time to teach. This teaching idea and the homeschooling idea, I think we have to be very flexible and go, you know what, I need to run to the grocery store. All right, I'm going to start teaching fractions. Well, this is a quart of milk. This is a gallon of milk. There are four quarts of these will fit in this gallon of milk. And so so it might take you twice as long to get to the grocery store, but in the grocery store you've taught fractions. And so we really do have to be able to say, look, this learning can happen all the time. And in fact, uh, many of us know as parents that the car is a wonderful time to start actually talking to your kids and teaching them because they think that you're driving and so they don't feel as threatened, like in the sense that you're not sitting down one-on-one expecting them to perform. They actually a little bit more relaxed sometimes in the car and they can start rehearsing their spelling words and doing things that normally you would think they would have to sit down with a piece of paper and go through on the just sitting down at their table sitting still. So open up, I think, our understanding of what learning looks like and how we can actually teach in everyday life is one of the things our kids really will excel in. And they, will, they won't feel like they are having to learn and having to perform. It just becomes part of just the, the family culture. And you know, and something else we share in common is that we also used we we, we approached our local school system as a um, as a buffet where we we would and it changed oftentimes uh, you know we'd go one year and then we'd think this is not working so we would try the charter school and we would stay there for a while and um, we did not have a good private school option but if we did I, there is no question that that. Um, we would have utilized that as well. Um, and uh, so we also had our kids go to mm-hmm. a number of, uh, we had four kids in four different schools uh, on, on more than one year for certain, and, and, and absolutely. And, it, and we, just, we just accepted that that's how it's going to have to be. I, I would like to talk some now about tips for knowing when it's time to change your child's school environment. Um, you've got your kid in a school or you, and, and you're thinking, do I need to homeschool? Do I need to uh, move my kid to a, uh, a Montessori-based school? Do I need to move my kid to the charter school? What do I need to do? What are some ways, I mean, ha- what are the tips that you know that it's time that you need to do something? You know, I think that really comes from us doing some self-reflection. And this may sound like it's not an exact answer, but I think it is. If you as a parent absolutely dread picking your kid up from school, you hate getting them out of bed in the morning because you know it's going to be a fight, you hate going to that school meeting, you know what? The fight's over. It, you really have to check in with yourself and say, is this really working? What is my gut telling me? And, you know, when you said that you guys homeschooled because you just needed a break, that was the point that you were absolutely right. This isn't working for our family. And I think we have to hold that 
that balance of when do I just need to push my child versus when is this absolutely destroying my family? And I, I use that word very purposely because this is really what can happen. And we aren't flexible enough because we come from this blueprint that says, oh, you must get up, you must go to school, and you follow this, uh, this same alignment. No, no, no. We, trauma puts us in a whole new perspective where we have to say, we're going to do this differently. This, we're going to be non-conventional, non-traditional. And by the way, our conventions and our traditions, they were designed around kids who didn't have trauma. And so we're trying to put our kids into a system that is not equipped to handle them. And so I think we really just need to check in with ourselves. We have the answers. It may not be the answer we want. Like I said, it's like, I'm not going to homeschool. But I knew that that was what it was, was needed. So just check in and very honestly, objectively with yourself and say, is this really working? Yeah, so, so looking inwardly to yourself. And if we're looking outwardly to our child, what are some signs that um, uh, that our child is needing something that, that, that he or she is not getting? You know, if they are completely miserable at school, if they cry that they don't want to go to school, it's not that they're just being a baby. They're giving you a message that this isn't working. They come home. Now, here's the other thing, though. You know, some obvious signs like that are pretty, you know, okay, it's not working. I want to also flip this and go to the other side, though, because a lot of our kids will be actually doing very well in school, but they're coming home and absolutely falling apart. That's actually a time that you probably need to relook at the school environment as well because they're holding it together at school just because they have just enough in their nervous system to make it work, but when they come home and the family is collapsing, well, then that's not really good either. And I'll tell you why that's not good, because first it's not good for the family, but also you have a child then is becoming very fragmented. They're becoming one person at school and coming home and being a different person. And as a personality develops, you got this fragmentation happening. So whenever you see either the school environment is collapsing they're in the school and collapsing or they're home collapsing or obviously they're collapsing in both. Um, I just think that that when you look at that level of intensity that is happening, just be open to saying, what else is there? We get very locked in to say, well, I can't afford that. Well, I can't do that because my job. Well, I can't do that. I have four kids in, in four different schools. There's no way my family can handle that. Mm-hmm. Well, there is. You have to say, where is the solution? Instead of looking at the fear, you have to say, well, how do we make this work? And so it really just becomes asking some different questions and and giving up some things. And giving up some things. No, you're exactly right. Uh, because you're right, given most people will have to make some significant changes in order to have four kids in four different schools or <laughs> homeschool. Um, you do have to look at yourself. And I, I was really glad you mentioned that about the kid is actually functioning fairly well at school but comes home because, yes, <clears throat> absolutely, that uh, is, I think, another sign that, that in fact, this kid is is, is really struggling. And, and, and you know, uh, Don, a lot of parents say, well, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't want to take him out of school. He's doing so well. But that really is not okay because if they're not doing well at home, then you really have lost everything. So really consider that as well for parents. And I know some parents consider homeschooling um, or even part-time schooling uh, in the early years after post-adoption because they're they're wanting more time with their child to, to attach, to bond, uh, to establish relationships, and to help their child developmentally um, regulate and catch up. So I think that 
I have heard a number of families who have decided to do that for, again, for they're going into it at least with the assumption that it's going to be a, a short-term basis. Um, mm-hmm. Is that effective, do you think? I think so, especially in the very beginning because, you know, like my kids have an orphanage. If I put them in, if I, if I put them right into a daycare or a preschool for eight hours a day, to them it's nothing but another orphanage. And so it is about retraining our kids to say, what comes first is family. I think that's the number one message if you kind of look at everything I've said today, is that what we're teaching our kids, number one, is family. Family comes first. So, yes, let's build that foundation of connection, relationship, attachment, and then we can start going into sort of the, the real world, the outside world. But if if things start falling apart in the outside world, then we come back where? Always come back to the family, decrease, build that, and you know, shut out the world sometimes. It's like lock the door, close the shades. We're going to make this work first in the family, and then we're going to branch out to the world where we can actually function in reality. And one last question that we have uh, that that I want to get in because I think this is a not this is a fairly common one. Um, Many children, especially those who've come from abuse and neglect, that's both through foster care as well as international uh, adoption, will end up with an individualized education plan, an IEP. But the IEP is is not focusing on it, – it, it tends to be more behavior-based rather than developmental-based or, or relationship-based. And uh, how do you get the school to – to or have you had success getting the school to adapt the IEP to reflect some of the more relationship-based approaches that might be more appropriate from children who've experienced trauma? Yes, I have had a success with that. It, it does helping. It takes us going in with an open mind and saying, how can I help them see it from a different perspective? But I think the main thing is that the IEP, it always and the bottom line it is going to have to be outcome focused because you have to have it measurable and i understand that but what we can do is write then some of the directives and some of the goals on there from a like you said the developmental perspective relationship perspective regulatory perspective but still have measurable outcomes and that is actually possible and i will say just to say where where do you get that information from well i have my book that you mentioned in the beginning help for billy is actually written to be able to help classrooms and actually anyone and working just in the home and homeschooling to help our kids learn but actually one chapter in that book the entire chapter is devoted ex- exactly for the need of writing an iep and i give very you know, straight examples that you can pull out verbatim and put them in your child's IEP so that it fits. If you've got a child that is having a hard time sitting still, there are things in there that you can just pick out of the book and write into the IEP. So it's a very much a, a manual of how to write an IEP based off of not behavioral uh, ideas, but more of a regulatory developmental focus. And so I just want to put that out there as a resource for parents of how that can actually be accomplished. And the title of that book, just to remind everybody, is Help for Billy. Uh, and, and, and in just a minute, I'm going to give you the website where you can access that, although you can buy that on Amazon or you can ask. Yep, Amazon. Ask it's right there on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, any independent bookseller, you can ask for them to uh, stock it as well, and, and, and they will. Uh, let me thank you so much, Heather, uh, for being on the Today Show. This has been so helpful. Let me My take pleasure. a moment to... 
thank a few more of our gold sponsors. We have, and remind you that uh, this show is a result of their support of us, we have Children's Connection, Inc. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, uh, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. Um, again, if you have enjoyed this show, please do us a favor and give us a rating on iTunes. It truly only takes a moment, and it is how others are able to find out about us and this show, and, and we would really very much appreciate that. Um, then if you want to participate in a discussion of this show tomorrow, I'm going to be blogging on uh, one of the topics of, of today's show, and you can participate in the comments or on the social media where we'll be posting it, and we would love to have your your information. Thank you again so much, uh, Heather, for being on the show today. To get more information about her and for her book, Help for Billy, you can go to her website, which is help-for-billy.com. Com. And she's got resources there, but I really recommend that you buy the book if uh, you have a square peg that you're trying to educate and get through the uh, school system. It is just a great resource for you to utilize. Thank you so much for listening to us today, and I will see you. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.